But I want to introduce my message by way of my title, which is going to sound kind of strange maybe, but it's the invasion of our privacy. The invasion of our privacy. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, if you're listening much out in the world, and maybe you're aware of this, and maybe you're more attuned to these kind of things, because we all hear it, but there's this recurring discussion in our country concerning the invasion of our privacy, especially by the government. And it seems to upset so many people. It causes them so much anxiety and fear. Now, I don't know how you feel about it. I don't particularly care for the government to be involved in my business, but it's going to happen. This isn't a political talk. This isn't a rally. But those are the kind of topics that you'll hear out in the world. Everybody's all up in arms. They're, they're, they're invading our privacy. And yet so many, probably so many in this room, and I'm sure you realize it, that when you use Facebook and when you email, when you text, all those things in a way become public, especially Facebook. And I think you know that, but you willingly just put a lot of things on there that maybe you don't need to put on there. Because those things now become public. Again, this isn't a political message, but when you put things on a social media site that affect other people, not just yourself, you need to really think about that. I really do think you need to think about what you're putting out there for everyone to see or have access to. It's been, I've read articles where the government is basically able to keep every, keep track of and records of every email, every text, every internet search on everybody. Now, if you don't like that thought, watch what you're doing. Be aware of what you're doing then. But there's one, there is one who invades our privacy to a greater degree than the government. And I hope in your heart and in your mind you have no objection to that because you have no choice in the matter. But if we turn to, if you're already in the Hebrews chapter 4, you know, the legal definition of intrusion or invasion of our privacy is the intrusion into the personal life of another or the intrusion on one's solitude or into one's private affairs. Now, I know for a fact that everyone in this room has a private life. I have a private life. I have thoughts. I have all kinds of things that were within my personality that you don't need to know about. I'm not trying to hide anything from anybody, but I don't need to know everything about you, do I? No. But there is one who does. He knows you down to the very core of your being. And in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11, we read this. It says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, 
and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The first time I read that and it struck, the truth struck me on that, it actually brought me peace and relief. Somehow I no longer had any pretense. Not that I, had, I didn't think I had pretense before God, but suddenly I, the realization is, is that he knows everything about me. He knows everything about me. And yet, he still loves me. And yet, he still has a plan and a purpose for all of us. But we're cutting in. This, this verse is actually the end of a thought that starts back in chapter 3, verse 7. You can follow me if you will, but I want to just briefly mention where this is coming from. But in chapter 3 and verse 7, he's giving these people a warning and an exhortation. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he's quoting the Old Testament, and it's the Holy Spirit saying today, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. So the author of Hebrews is using the Israelites, and we all know the story of their exodus from Egypt and their journey to the promised land. And he's telling these people here who he's writing to, and if we were to just do a cursory reading of the book of Hebrews, we're going to come to a place where we understand that these people are being written to because they started out well. They started out believing. And I still think they are. But things came into their lives. Things crossed their paths. Circumstances changed. Their whole culture maybe is in an uproar, could quite possibly be that they are facing the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Everything they knew is being turned upside down and they're beginning to wonder. We've put our trust in Jesus as the Messiah. We've set our hearts on the future promise of His rest, as this chapter will say. And yet, now... Everything is coming apart at the seams. We're being challenged on every corner. We're, it seems like our lives are being pressed so hard that the author here is not giving them warnings as if these things will happen, but a warning it's so that they'll maintain the course. They'll understand that these things do not terminate where they're going and where their end shall be. Yet they needed to know that today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as those did in the wilderness. In verse 8, they started out there. We know that they started out there uh, from their exodus from Egypt and they're on their journey to enter the promised land, which is called his rest, God's rest. He's quoting Psalm 95 as if it's current today. The writer of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Old Testament writing as if today that is being said. This is how the Bible is timeless. And we'll see in a minute. But he gives them a warning in verse 12. 
He says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. His concern for these people is that, you know, they're just going to give up. They're going to quit. Things have not turned out. Jesus hasn't come back. I thought you said he was coming. I thought you said we were going to enter this promised land, this, this grand place that God has prepared before the foundation of the world. But he's telling him, listen, be aware. Be careful. Be on guard. Let it be known. Don't let an evil heart of unbelief be in any of you. Because here he's talking about departing in a way where you just forsake it all. You're apostatizing. You're deserting God. You've given up on him. I don't think any of us here are doing that. But I, you know, if, it, if it's written to these people, I think it could be written to us. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. It's his rest. It's his Sabbath that we look forward to. And that just like what was mentioned this morning about a boat and an island, I thought that's it. Here we are in a boat. The seas rise up. Things get tough. The island is that place of his rest. That's not changed. None of that has changed. In all of history, no matter what happens in history, none of that has changed. So he goes on in verse 8, and this is just a brief summary, but it says, If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered, in, entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. There is a rest remaining for the people of God. Now I know the next verse is going to say labor therefore, to enter into that rest. So we live a life right today, right? We live in a world of, of challenges. We live in a world full of demonic forces that want to knock you out of this race. It wants to take your expectation level from here down to here so that you will give up. And We can't give up. We should not give up. God's purpose remains. It remains for you. It remains for us. It remains for His church. Amen. And He's the one who's sovereign over all the events in life. Can we say that? So, Joshua didn't provide them rest. They, didn't, they entered the land and they took most of the cities and they took possession. And it even says that God gave them rest all around them from their enemies. But that's not the rest, is it? We're looking towards a rest when all of the struggles of this life, when all of the laboring to enter in, when all of the effort to maintain that hopeful expectation comes to an end and the reality of it is before us. That's where we set our hope. 
That's where we set our expectation. So in verse 11, our text, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest any fall according to the same example of disobedience. To be diligent. What does it mean to be diligent? I mean, he says we're supposed to be we're supposed to be diligent or labor to enter into that rest. Well, golly, brother, how am I supposed to labor and enter into the rest? Well, just what the whole letter's talking about. The things that come against us, the mental battles, the failures, the seemingly contradictory circumstances. We labor to maintain that eager engagement, as one man said. We labor to remain in expectation. We don't allow the things of this life to take us down. So just like these people, we who have started on this journey, we who are in this race, We've not reached the goal, have we? The end has not yet arrived for all of us. The end being His rest. I look forward to that day of being in His rest. I got to thinking about that. I thought, wow, it's His rest. You know, when He rested on the Sabbath day, there was no morning and evening. It was just the Sabbath. And it says that God rested from His works. We are called to enter His rest. And in His rest, there is no turmoil. In His rest, there is no, you know, all these contradictory things. In His rest, there's no more working, laboring, striving and struggling and giving diligent effort to things. We have now finished the race and we enter His rest. It's hard for me to even imagine what that's like. You know, you get so busy and you get so tired and you get so... worked up in your efforts to do so many things and you think, what would it be like to be at rest? To have no more conflict, to have no more attacks from the enemies, to have no more struggle. You've put in the labor. You've put in the diligence. You've rowed the boat through the storm. You've stayed in the boat. He says that we need to be diligent to enter, and he warns these people, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. You picture those people as they're coming to the promised land, and they're given a promise of entering, that God's purpose for them was to enter the land. And in their disobedience and in our unbelief, They did what? According to Scripture, they hardened their heart. And it says in chapter 3 that their corpses fell in the wilderness. And it kind of struck me. You know, you can just picture these people on their way to to, to where they should have gotten to. And yet they rebelled, they gave up, they couldn't do it. They, They just, it wasn't worth it to them. They allowed the circumstances to defeat them. So it says that their corpses fell in the wilderness and all I could picture was these dead bodies being strewn 
as they're waiting for that generation to pass away. And he's warning these people, don't let that happen to you. We don't want to see any bodies in the wilderness. So the letter exhorts and warns the readers, those who are believing, to continue in their profession while facing much and any opposition. We're told that we are his house if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And that we are to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So we, like those, need to make sure that we're being diligent. That anything contrary to what is our expectant hope is dealt with. Don't let distractions, don't let discouragement, don't let things that want to take you out of the race take you out of the race. So we're, we give diligence to that. But we know that these things will only be accomplished through him. There's no amount of human effort ever going to be, do that, to, to be able to accomplish this. This is why we look to the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Verse 12, which is where I actually started or wanted to start, but verse 12 lets these people know something that we should know and should be reminded of. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Today, if we hear his voice, we are not to harden our hearts, are we? And we would say, well, I'm, I'm not doing that, brother. I don't do that. I hear God's word, and my heart is so pliable that whatever he commands, whatever he obeys, whatever he is teaching me to do, I just, whatever you say, Lord. That's not all of us, is it? Sometimes today we hear his voice, and in some small way we can do just like they did. And we can become stubborn and hard-hearted. We need to understand that we can't do that in any way. Today, if we hear his voice, harden not our hearts. For the word of God is. And there's several things that it's mentioned here. Now, first of all, it's the word of God, isn't it? The word of God. The word of God. The word of God. Think about it. It's a divine Word. It's God's Word to us. This isn't some ancient script that we just keep copying for years and years and years. And we put some, we put some aura on it. 
as if by our effort we can make this be anything more than it is. It's the Word of God. It's God's revelation. It's God's speech to us. It's first of all divine. And with just saying that, it should carry all the weight of a divine word. I think about when I approach the word, when I go to read or study, do I find myself, as we're told in Scripture, do I find myself almost trembling at his word? Do I find myself in respect and awe of what God has said? And do I look at it with a humble and receptive heart and say, Lord God, whatever you have said, I will do. Or do we just go to our favorite passages, pull out our interesting verses, and tend to skip over the things that maybe challenge us? It's easy to do that. I mean, it's, it's just the Bible, right? It's just the Bible. We pick and choose wherever, wherever we want, right? It's, it's just this recipe book that we have here that has lots of recipes and formulas in it that we can thereby use to enhance our lives. It's basically just a textbook that we study from or, you know, a handbook. It's, it can be that in a way, but let's remind ourselves that this is God's word. This is his divine word to us. This is the thing that we hear and we're warned not to harden our heart to it. Second thing he says is that it is living. God's word is living, which means what? It has life. It's, it's alive. Now, my Bible has never walked off the table on its own. But if someone writing to other people can take Old Testament verses and write those as if they are current today, it is because it is. It's living. Nothing in here has ever died. Nothing in this revelation that we have has ever ceased to be relevant, current, and for us right now. It is ever living. It's as current as the morning newspaper. It is always speaking. It has never ceased. It is His living Word. He is the living God, is He not? Amen. Jesus said in John six sixty three, The words that I have said to you, they are spirit and they are life. We know that the grass withers and its flower fades away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. We have in our possession the greatest document ever written. And it's for us to hear and obey and have an expectant hope in what it says. The day we begin to question that, the day we begin to wonder if that's really what that means, is a day you need to get back to being diligent.
Third thing he says there is not only is it God's word, it's living, but it's what? It's powerful. It's powerful. His divine living word is powerful. His word creates. Did his word not create everything we see? Does his word not uphold everything we see? Does his word not give us life? It's his word. It's powerful. You know, the scripture speaks of itself in many ways. And I'm sure we've heard all these through the years. But scripture itself uses many descriptions of itself or metaphors. I don't even know what that means. and I'm sure I can't spell it. I do not. But Scripture is multifaceted. It has the power to reveal as a mirror, James 1. It has the power to regenerate as incorruptible seed, 1 Peter 1. It has the power to cleanse us as water, Ephesians 5. It has the power to illuminate and guide us as a lamp, Psalm 119. It has the power to nourish us as milk, as bread, as meat, and as honey. See, if we ever lose sight of this word of God that is living and powerful, and we begin to wonder, does it still have the power? It has never ceased to have that power. It also has the power to execute justice and judgment as a hammer. Jeremiah 23, 29. And here in our text, God's word is revealed as a sword. A sword, an instrument used in warfare to execute judgment. I've never seen anybody cut a birthday cake with a sword. His word is a sword. His word is not a feather. It gives us all these things. It has the power to provide for us all that we need. The nourishment, the mirror, the lamp. But here we see it described as a sword. And when we think of a sword, we know I mean, you know, swashbuckling, you know, we, we just picture sword fight, right? I mean, that's, I don't picture birthday cake cutting. I picture damage being done. I picture an execution of judgment by the sword. You know, we think of putting a city to the sword. What are we talking about? We're making war with that city. Or if a city falls by the sword... It was defeated. Jesus himself in Revelation 19:15 will execute judgment with the sword of his mouth. It says, "Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he shall strike the nations." And we all know that in Ephesians 6 we have been given a sword as part of our armor in our warfare against spiritual forces. 
that sword executes the same judgment that God would execute the very thing that's opposing him and his ways. We need to make sure that that's how we use it. It has the same power to execute judgment against our adversary. That's what we know Jesus used, right, when he was tempted in the wilderness. He drew his sword and he says, it's written. The devil responded. The devil was being told exactly what's being written. What has been written. That sword came out of his sheath and he didn't have any problem using it against the devil. And judgment was executed. We do the same. We should do the same. So God's word, that divine word, that powerful living word that's sharper than any two-edged sword, what does it do? We can read what it says it is, but what does it do? Well, it says, in verse 12, it says it pierces. Now, here's where it's getting tough, isn't it? Now, now we're getting into that title, the invasion of our privacy. The Word of God, that living, powerful Word as a two-edged sword, sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than any surgeon's scalpel could possibly dissect. It's piercing. If we're hearing the Word, if we're hearing His Word, it should have an effect. It should pierce at some point every one of us. Otherwise, we're either not hearing the word or the Bible's making this up. Somebody wrote this down and said, well, this is a neat metaphor. Let's make it a sword. That's not at all true. The truth of the matter is, is that his word is a sharp, sharper two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and merit. It invades our privacy like nothing else can. Now, if you're like a lot of people riled up in the world, oh, the government's trying to invade my privacy. I, I'm, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to resist it. When God, through His Word, pierces the deepest recesses of your life, do you resist? Do you harden yourself? Let's face it, we don't know what those areas are. That's God's doing. God uses His Word as a sword to pierce each one of us. And in doing so, we're left with that choice. Do we hear his word and harden our hearts? Or do we hear his word and say, yes, sir? So when we think about the word as being a two-edged sword so sharp that it is able to pierce into the deepest human recesses of their thoughts and intents. We have to also understand that no amount of man's effort 
to either manipulate people psychologically or no amount of, of uh, compulsion on a human being's speech to others. No amount of, of, of uh, intellect is what brings about this power. The power is inherent right here. All that's necessary is, for like's been said, is people, and you got to appreciate, you know, Jake, Jake's got in the harness. That's really what we're doing. I think Daryl said that. I'm waiting for him to put the harness on. But even talking to Jake, you know, it just struck me, it caught my ear that in this time, it does seem more like we're family. It's more like people can speak and feel like they're conversing with other family. And that says a lot. Because I'm sure you can go somewhere else and preach and you're not going to feel like you're with family. But here... That's not the case. But he says that he's a, the word of God. Verse 12 is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You want to talk about privacy invasion. I don't know what your thoughts and intents are. I, I wonder if you even know. Because I'm pretty sure you don't know all of your thoughts and intents or you're not seeing let me put it this way you're not seeing them as God sees them because every one of us in here we have thoughts and intentions all the time and we've probably got it all justified why uh, and then the word of God pierces and suddenly I don't like that someone's invading my deepest recesses Someone is dealing with my thoughts and intentions in a way that I thought I had it all under control. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. Nobody sees these things. These are all those unseen things that the Word of God is able to deal with. You know, in Acts 2, remember Peter was preaching after Pentecost, 237. And he's preaching, and he's even quoting Old Testament Scripture, Psalm 15, 16 and Psalm 110. He's quoting all these dead Scriptures from the Old Testament. Oh, They're not dead. There's nothing dead about it because when he preached from the Old Testament, the living oracles of God, this is what happened. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Thank God, that His Word is still living and powerful and able to pierce us down to the core of our being. Because it's in this way that we can be changed. You and I left to ourselves, we can have a grand time, can't we? We can just be slapping each other on the back. We're all great. And I'm not here to condemn us, and neither is he. 
But he's given us his word so that it can penetrate us, so that it can reveal to us things in us as he sees them, things that need changing. But we don't like that invasion of our privacy always. In verse 13, he says, he goes on to say, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When we're exposed to his word, we are exposed to God himself. We read those verses and, you know, you think, well, yeah, we know God can see everything in creation. He made it. He's able to see everything, right? Well, it says there's nothing hidden, nothing at all. In fact, when it says that uh, New King James here, from which I read from, it says naked, or it may say open. But it has to do with a word that we get gymnasium from. And back in those days, when the Greeks and Romans and all would go to the gymnasium, they pretty much disrobed because they wanted no restriction. Is this how God sees us? I'm not talking about the physical. I'm talking about you and I. All our pretenses have to go away, don't they? We now have to come before God as one who knows us better than we know ourselves. And then it says naked and open. And that word open is a word which we get trachea from. Trachea. It's the exposure of your throat. It's as if somebody in a wrestling match has you around the neck in a chokehold. Every one of us in this room, I hope, has understood that one day in your past, God had you exposed, naked before him, and held around the neck in a chokehold, maybe even pulled your head back as if to slay you. Because what's in your heart would have done that if God's word had not pierced you and made that real. Because the only way you're ever going to be saved, the only way you're ever going to move forward is to understand that everything about me is open and exposed and I am completely vulnerable to him. I have nothing to boast I have nothing to bring to God and say, well, you know, you can't do this. But instead, he opens us up. He makes us vulnerable. We begin to see ourselves as God sees us. So how do we respond? How do we respond when the word we hear exposes us? We become vulnerable. Maybe we're confronted with some of the deepest and hidden attitudes affections. Maybe we're confronted with pride, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, envies, jealousies, hatred. And go on, just name the list. Are these things that remain in his people? 
Or does he, by his word, his living and powerful word, does he pierce us for our benefit? Because you know what? At the end, if you don't respond in obedience, his word will judge you in your disobedience. And I don't want to be there when he comes with that sword coming out of his mouth. I don't want to be his target. There's no escape in that. We don't get to hide. We don't get to withdraw and go, no, that, then, then, then it's all in the open, isn't it? It's all in the open. So when we find ourselves exposed and vulnerable before him, when your privacy has been invaded to that degree and you're confronted with your weaknesses, your shortcomings, what do you do? Well, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, throughout the whole book of Hebrews, is declared as the one and only man from heaven who became like us and ran the race in perfect obedience enduring every single contradiction trial, temptation, trouble, conflict everything and yet sin not he never gave in to discouragement he never gave in to circumstances that would have, for you and I, been the end of us. But no. Who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down in that place of rest, this is who we look to. This is who we are to consider. The author and finish of our faith. Our circumstances in this world pale in comparison to what lies ahead when the race is finished. When we finally come to the end of this race that we're in, the end of this journey as a person, as an individual, and as a church. It's a glorious thing because we'll get to the end and the struggles will seem like nothing. If Jesus Christ could live a life in these frail bodies and endure such contradiction from sinners and persecution as he did, that should give us hope. That's who we look to. So when we're 
read in chapter 12 and we read about chastening, he say, he asked that question, have you endured such contradiction of sinners to the point of shedding blood? Nah. We haven't even come close to that, have we? We haven't even come close. But I sure would hate to think that one day our world turns upside down and we lose our expectation of the end of this race and we cut and run. I hope that never happens. I don't want to see a single corpse in the wilderness. This is about having an expectant hope of what God through his powerful and living word has promised to those who will hold fast their confession to the end. He had to be in all things made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid those who are tempted in chapter 5 it says though he was a son yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered he wasn't disobedient but he learned what it took for us as human beings to make it that's a sympathetic high priest that's, that's one who's had your experience and mine right? That's one who we are told not to scramble around looking for what do we do? How do I? It's Jesus. You are my high priest. You are the one who identified so closely with me that you now are sympathetic to the pain, to the, to the trials, to the suffering, to the challenges to this life. You not only did it, and have succeeded and is now sat at the right hand of the majesty on high, you are one who comes to my aid in these situations. He wants to aid us. He wants to be our help. That's why he can say in verse 16, he says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Talk about being a house of prayer. There it is. You and I, whether you realize it to any degree or not, you and I need to be boldly before the throne of grace. Because it is only by his mercy and him giving us grace in time of need that we make it. When he talks about time of need, it's talking about basically just in time, when it's needed. The throne of grace, that place that we are to boldly come to. Lord Jesus, I know that you were like me. You endured more than I'll ever endure. You understand the hurt and the heartache and the disappointment. I need your help. Is that weak? I am weak. 
Do I need his strength? Do I need his aid? Yes, I do. Do you? We're not to go this alone. We were never intended to go this alone. God knows us better than we know ourselves. How we respond to him when he invades our privacy will determine how well of an accounting we will give to him. And if you would, I'd just like to close. Uh, one, psalm 139, please. Wonderful psalm. But you know, when God pierces us so that we may know what's in us, it's for us to respond to. It's for us to give diligence to. He's not out to destroy his own people. Even in Psalm 95, before it says, today if you will hear his voice, it says, you are our God and the people of your hand. We are the sheep. We're your people. So today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. You're mine. I'm your God. But in Psalm 139, says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before means to cramp or to confine and you laid your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high I cannot attain it where can I go from your spirit where can I flee from your presence and this doesn't have to be you trying to escape his presence but think about it in terms of where could you go that God isn't already there where can I flee from your presence if I ascend into heaven you are there if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall become light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. O precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, 
for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. I do hate them, O Lord. I hate them who hate you. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And he closes this psalm by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God's invasion of our privacy is because he loves us. God knows more about you than you will ever know. And when he says he has hedged you in behind and has had his hand upon you, when his thoughts are more numerous toward you than the sand of the sea, can you even comprehend that? He knew me. He knew you before you were born. He has led us to this day and will continue to lead us with his hand upon us. Amen. Close your Bibles. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. We thank you for the love and the care. We thank you that you have even given thought to us. We thank you that your word remains living and powerful and is able to pierce us. May you, as the psalmist said, search us and try us. Pray that you would just lead each one of us with your hand upon us. Just thank you that you are ever present with us and your word will never fail. Amen.
Yeah. 